Do you hear that? That's the sound of finger-licking fried chicken topped with french fries bubbling away in a hot bath of grease. Until this episode, I never gave a second thought to where all of that used cooking oil goes. Turns out it's liquid gold worth more than a gallon of gasoline these days. And that means that enterprising crooks are fueling a multi-million dollar black market in the United States for used cooking oil. Hello, I'm investigative reporter Robert Riggs with an unusual story from inside the crime scene tape. In this episode of the True Crime Reporter podcast, I talk to Gary Edgington, a 40-year law enforcement veteran who is hot on the trail of the grease thieves. We touch on a wide range of his cases from his career with the Beverly Hills Police Department, where he worked a murder in the Billionaire Boys Club, and with the L.A. County District Attorney, where he guarded a prosecutor in the O.J. Simpson murder trial, and we discuss his narcotics cases and cases with the FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force in Los Angeles, and later his role in counterinsurgency operations in Iraq, gathering DNA evidence of the IED bombers. And that's not all. Now Edgington is the author of the acclaimed Outside the Wire, a novel of murder, love, and war. It's a fictional thriller inspired by his experience and is about Iranian operatives bent on destroying America. So make yourself a plate of fried chicken tenders and listen to the interview with Gary Edgington. Would you explain how the crime of stealing used cooking oil goes down and where do they find it and how difficult is it to get away? Well, usually used cooking oil is stored either inside the restaurant or outside the restaurant. And uh, if it's stored outside the restaurant, it's usually stored where the trash cans are. And frequently it's mistaken for trash because of that. And of course it is far from trash. It's very, it's worth a, a pretty decent amount of money. It's actually worth more than gasoline right now. But if it's stored on the inside, the company I work for, Darling Ingredients International, we have a proprietary fitting that, that we install at a restaurant that contracts with us that we utilize. And uh, that fitting has a male and a female end. And uh, we have uh, our, our collection trucks utilize a fitting that is designed specifically to mate with that other fitting. But the thieves, they're coming in their own collection trucks with pumps and it yes. happens pretty fast. How difficult is it to catch them and what are they using? Well, a lot of times they're using um, large pumping trucks. Sometimes they'll use trucks that were originally used. They'll repurpose trucks that were originally used for septic tank pumping or fuel hauling. Um, I see fuel hauling trucks out here in the Southeast and I have seen large septic pump trucks. Trucks that are capable of pumping and storing large amounts of liquid are usually what's done. But also we'll see pickup trucks with a couple of 300-gallon totes on the back and a trash pump. And this is a, what, a multi-million dollar black market? Oh, yes. Tens of millions. Yes. Hundreds of millions probably across the country. 
Is it diverted to just biofuels or are there other uses for this used grease? Well, legitimate uses are primarily animal feed supplements. During the, the hard winter, cooking oil is processed and used as an animal feed to sustain livestock that are exposed to the elements. Also, of course, it is used in the manufacture of biodiesel and also in women's cosmetics, believe it or not. That's always a showstopper for me when I tell people that. <laughs> well, this is the latest chapter in your 40-year law enforcement career. Let me take you back. Now, you worked with the Beverly Hills Police Department, and I'm sure many of my listeners have got that image of the the Beverly Hills Cops movie. But what was it like working there with, in, with Hollywood and all those wealthy people? Well, in actual fact, it was a really a great experience. Beverly Hills Police Department is a top-notch police department. We had good equipment, good training. The people there at the time I was there were extremely supportive of the police, supported the mission. Rarely did you come in contact uh, with what we call North End residents. The, 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 the really expensive properties were north of Santa Monica Boulevard. That was called the North End, unless they were victims of a crime. Occasionally, you would come in contact with them for some kind of emergency uh, situation, but mostly it was when they were a victim of a crime or something like that. And what kinds of crimes? Robbery, murder, death investigations, domestic violence, yeah. things like that. You worked a murder in the Billionaire Boys Club, correct? In yes, I was on the periphery. Um, I was in the detective bureau then, and I was investigating a, uh, I had another case that was a uh, burglary from motor vehicle case, and the victim of that case was a gentleman by the name of uh, Ron Levin. And Ron was kind of a, a fast talker, very gregarious guy. And he used to call me almost every day about the progress of the case and just to talk. One day those calls stopped. And then fast forward a few weeks later, we learned that he was missing. And that was uh, the genesis of a uh, multi-victim uh, murder investigation that was called the Billionaire Boys Club. And kind of explain for my listeners who don't know, the, give me the overview of what that was about. Well, basically, the Billionaire Boys Club was a group of young, upper middle class, upper class guys who uh, knew each other from school, and they formed an investment company that they thought was going to, utilizing a, uh, an investment strategy uh, that they thought was going to you know, change the world. And it basically really didn't, and it all kind of came crumbling and crashing down around their ears. So they started resorting to other methodologies uh, to generate revenue to include uh, extortion and, uh, and murder. I know that they believed that they had invested money that uh, Ron Levin had given them. And that turned out to be false. And uh, that upset them a great deal. And that is what led ultimately to, to Ron's uh, murder. So how did he get on the wrong side? Well, my understanding is that he met them and uh, convinced them that he was a multimillionaire and would be interested potentially in investing with them. And somehow he, and I don't remember exactly how this happened because I was not intimately involved in this aspect of the case. Somehow he convinced them that he was investing money with them, that, but it turned out that there was no money. So that upset them a great deal. They basically got flim-flammed. And um, and so uh, that's what prompted them 
to attempt to extort money out of him. And when they couldn't get the money, they killed him? Yes, uh, that's my understanding. That's correct. So how did your part of the investigation to his murder unfold? Well, as I said, I was on the periphery of this. I was involved in a supporting role because I was working auto theft and auto burglary. And so my Uh, exposure to the case was in assisting other detectives on the investigation, being aware of of the situation with Ron Levin and the investigation I had where he was actually my victim. So what do you make of it? I mean, obviously he was some sort of con man, but yet he's calling you all the time about his, his car. Right. Well, that was just who he was. He was a very gregarious guy. He liked to maintain friendships in the community with all kinds of different people. And I think this was just part of his personality and his his MO, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What would you say was your most interesting case while you were working in Beverly Hills? I would say that that would be right up there. A lot of the cases I had when I was working detectives involved uh, the theft of, of vehicles and Becker radios and that kind of thing. I did have one very interesting investigation that actually kind of dovetails into terrorism because I had a theft of an, of an automobile and we identified the valet as the person who perpetrated the theft. We arrested him, sat down and talked with him. And uh, I noticed he had a lot of burns all over his body. Well, he gave me a story about having been burned in a gasoline fire. He told me he was Italian. He had an Italian passport, et cetera, et cetera. Well, come to find out about a couple months later, we got a, uh, a bulletin. And that guy was actually injured overseas. He's actually, he was actually Iranian and he was actually injured overseas in a a mishap with an explosive device. And uh, that was the origin of the scarring and all of that stuff. So that was very interesting. That was the first terrorist I ever met. And were you on a terrorism task force at that time? No, no, I was not. I was just simply working auto theft. I didn't work uh, a terrorism task force until much later in my career. Well, let's kind of go back to how you got started. What attracted you to to policing and law enforcement? Well, my father, after he got out of the military, after he got out of the Coast Guard, he went to work uh, as a Harbor Patrol officer in uh, Marina del Rey. And so I got that exposure. And I also spent time with some of his friends who worked for the sheriff's department. So I met some deputies. And that just sort of sparked my interest. And then, of course, there were probably a couple of television shows, specifically a show called Police Story that was written by Joseph Wombau that I really enjoyed. And so I kind of sort of gravitated in that direction. And that's how it started. I became an explorer, a police explorer at the Culver City Police Department, then was hired as a cadet and worked there for several years. And then in in 79, I was hired by the Manhattan Beach Police Department as a police officer and went to the Sheriff's Academy. And while you're in the academy, you lose your father. That is correct. In the third week of training, I was notified he was injured. And I went to the hospital and was told that he had been, uh, he'd been stabbed to death by an uh, uh, individual who was living in the marina who was uh, basically out of his mind. And we later found out that this individual was something that he, somebody that he had had contact with on a couple of other occasions and was uh, an individual that had been arrested in 1975 and committed to the state mental hospital for attempted murder and assault with a deadly weapon. He used a, a rifle on people when he lost his mind, basically. And then he was released 18 months later and given Thorazine and told to 
take his Thorazine and be good. And of course, he lost his mind, stopped taking the drugs and attacked my father on September 30th, 1979 and stabbed him to death. My father fired one shot into him, but it, it, it didn't have effect. And he, he cut my father's throat and, mm. uh, and my father expired at the scene. Well, you know, as you know, today, you know, especially out Santa Monica, you can really see it there, but all the cities here in Dallas, there are so many homeless on the streets and many of them are, need mental help. They should be getting some kind of help therapy, but they're loose and you can see them on the streets out of control. Based on what happened to your father and what you see now, I mean, is it a, is this, the problem much, much bigger and the threat to the public bigger? Oh, absolutely. There's no question about it. I mean, I see people that are obviously seriously deranged or going through some sort of psychotic mm-hmm. episode, screaming and ranting and raving at the top of their lungs. When I lived in Southern California, it happened almost on a daily basis before we left. I don't see it nearly as much here. But yeah, those people are, you know, sometimes they're completely benign, but sometimes they're not. And how do you tell the difference between the two until it's too late when you're confronted with a life or death situation? So what what do you think it is going on in society now, and particularly like cities like San Francisco, it's happening here in Dallas, that, that city leaders, the politicians tolerate this? There are a lot of areas that I believe are contributing factors towards this. Anecdotally, I, I noticed after... California passed a couple of, of uh, prison re- so-called prison reform laws that it seemed like the homeless uh, problem escalated dramatically and property crimes and street crimes escalated also in Los Angeles. I think that's a, that's a well-established fact. It's far more than anecdotal. And certainly, you know, in policing, you learn that, that there's really a very small portion of the population that's creating the, the, the serious crimes. It's about 5% or so. And if you lock those people up, suddenly uh, things calm down dramatically. I mean, when you see, when you see individuals taken off the street, then they can't offend. They can't, they can't uh, harm people, you know, the, the, the everyday citizenry on the street. So when that doesn't happen, they do what they like to do, which is offend, do whatever crimes it is that they prefer and that's when we see rising crime rates. And that's why we're seeing the things that we're seeing now. Well, after your father was killed in the line of duty, did you think about, no, I'm not going to go forward? Or, or why did you continue you know, for 40 years? Well, I have to say that, that you know, it, was, it still is pretty painful uh, to, to, to think about and discuss. But the fact of the matter is that I was in the third week of the academy. It'd taken a long, a lot of work and effort to get to that point. I know my father would not have wanted me to stop. And I was on a course and uh, was determined to see it through. And that's what I did. I graduated with my class. And then in your career, was this when you were at Beverly Hills, but you did some sort of work on the O.J. Simpson case? No, that was at the uh, L.A. County DA's office. I I worked on the... uh, the O.J. Simpson case as not in a trial support, but in a associated with it from a standpoint of uh, protecting the uh, prosecutor on the case 
and doing some other things that were related to the investigation in a support capacity because I was working I was working in a reactive unit, the organized crime and narcotics unit. And that was one of the functions that uh, ancillary functions that we had was detection of, of individuals that working for the DA's office or for that matter, uh, witnesses that needed protection. And was the prosecutor receiving threats during the trial? I'm sure she was, but I left before the trial got started. I transferred to the Department of Justice before the trial got started. And having been a detective there, what was your reaction when you saw him acquitted? Oh, I was shocked, absolutely shocked and very saddened. I had known one of the prosecutors on that for many years, Chris Darden. I was a baby detective and he was a new prosecutor back in the day and knew him to be an outstanding individual, you know, somebody who's really dedicated to the rule of law and justice. And my heart broke when I watched him react uh, to the verdict uh, when they were talking about it at the press conference. It just was so sad. It was, it was really tragic, really a tragic miscarriage of justice. But I think politics played a, a, a key role in that. Explain to our listeners why the glove didn't fit. You know, there was a big moment in the courtroom, Johnny Cochran, and the glove didn't fit. But explain why it didn't fit. Well, there's a couple of reasons why it didn't fit. Number one, O.J. Simpson's wearing latex gloves. If you ever try to put something on over a latex glove that is tight fitting, those gloves were skin tight to begin with. They, they had been wet from blood, with human blood and then dried, which probably made them a little bit tighter or certainly stiff. And try to put something on that's tight fitting over a latex glove. It isn't going to happen. And the gloves, are, the latex was on to protect the evidence. Uh, correct. Yeah. That's my understanding. Absolutely. So it wasn't really, it wasn't a realistic case of putting on gloves. and No. And it was probably a, a, a misstep uh, in, in that prosecution. I think everybody probably acknowledges it was a misstep, but things happen. And, um, you know, there were probably other factors in that case that uh, were problematic. So what else while you were with the uh, L.A. County? Other cases or what did you move on to then? I worked major narcotics. And before that, I worked welfare fraud. And I had a case that was really pretty disgusting. Individual who was living in North Las Vegas, Nevada, and flew in twice a month to pick up her welfare checks in L.A. County. She had like five or six, seven, I don't even remember how many open aid cases under under aliases that she was collecting money on. We did search warrants on her house uh, in, in Vegas. And I vividly recall talking to the, the caseworkers on these cases when I was doing my investigation. And several of them have told me that they had been kind of discouraged from cooperating. Now, I'm sure that it's changed. But back then, you know, it was kind of a, uh, a situation where uh, a metric for productivity for for those offices was getting money out the front door, you know, numbers of cases, that kind of thing. And, you know, uncovering fraud was probably not something that they really wanted us to, to, to really do. And this case was pretty egregious. And I also worked a, uh, a, a major narcotics trafficking case that I started out with uh, with one pill, a quaalude pill, um, that was a facsimile. It was actually quaalude, but it was a facsimile called something else. 
And I was able through doing by bus to rest, uh, work all the way up to the source of supply and shut that down. And we, we seized tens of thousands of pills. And that investigation actually affected the price, the street price of the pill went way, way up because the source of supply had been interdicted by that investigation. So that was a pretty cool case. I was very proud of that case. And was this the, was the source the Mexican cartels, or is this before they took control? Well, the individual that was bringing it in, it was coming from Mexico, from a manufacturer in Mexico, illicit manufacturer in Mexico. But I do not believe that this was related to a drug trafficking cartel as we now know them in, in uh, Mexico. You know, many of the uh, DE agents that I've known over the years have retired and you know, it really ended up quite frustrating that you know, they, it was just a flood. They just felt they were up against a flood. Well, that's absolutely true. And, you know, narcotics, like almost any law enforcement function, has a political aspect. And when the politicians and, by extension, the, the judiciary lack the resolve to enforce the laws as they're written, we see the results. And people risk their lives every day to enforce these laws and individuals are, are convicted, but then given light sentences or paroled out quickly or whatever. It's very, very frustrating. And the results you see on the street, you know, with, uh, with people that are, you know, addicts wandering the streets, acting like almost like, almost like zombies, mm-hmm. you know, in some, res- in some respects. And there's, there's been an explosion of fentanyl on the street. Mm-hmm. Based on your experience, how do you account for that? I mean, it is massive numbers of pills out there. Well, you know, fentanyl is something that's been around a long time. Obviously, it was a legitimate drug for a long time. And being good businessmen uh, and good businesswomen in Mexico and other places, they saw an opportunity to tap into a, an emerging market, and they saw that the demand uh, was high, and uh, moving this stuff is easier. Profits are higher because logistically, we're not talking about kilograms of cocaine that weigh 2.2 pounds. We're talking about, you know, a few a baggie of pills that's probably worth more than a kilogram of cocaine, and much easier to move. And so. It's less bulky and logistically it's easier to move and the profits are, are probably as high or higher because, you know, once they have the raw chemicals, it's, it's fairly easy to do. You don't have to have fields and fields of coca plants or marijuana plants, which is a whole other logistics issue and, and labs in the jungle, you know, refining coca paste into powder and all these other things. You can do it in, in, a, in a, you know, a, a factory building. And, and knock it out pretty quickly and then move to another spot. As long as you have access to the raw materials, you can make it happen and make big money doing it. Well, the volume is, is incredible. Uh, and I'll give you an example. A few months ago here in a suburb of Dallas, uh, the DEA and a local police department raided a house. And it was a transshipment point. It was just a place to store. And they seized one million fentanyl tablets. And they were like, hey, there's dozens more houses like this out there. This is this nothing. And by the way, it didn't even make the news. <laughs> you know, right. Was, um, Which is 
sad. <laughs> yeah. And then when you sit down to look at the population of the U.S. and a, millions of tablets, I, I was just like, how many addicts are there? Yeah. And the cartels, you know, in many cases, they're killing their clients, the right. user. Right. But there's always one behind that one. That's that's the way they're looking at it. You know, it's it's a metric that, you know, that they have they see, you know, generating huge amounts of money. Do you recall mm-hmm. what the street value was of that seizure? No, I don't. Yeah, I bet it was tens oh, of gosh. millions. Tens uh, of absolutely. Millions. Absolutely. We're going to pause for a break, and when we come back, we will talk to Gary Edgington about his work in counterterrorism and in Iraq. Did you imagine at the time that Al-Qaeda was building the way it was and the the growing threat of it? Yes. I was aware of Al-Qaeda for a long time prior to that because, like I said, I was interested in in terrorism. Uh, The the warning signs uh, were basically billboards. I mean, bin Laden declared jihad on the United States early on, and, of course, we had – uh, Tanzit, the uh, Dar es Salaam and Nairobi bombings. We had the coal. We had the World Trade Center bombing, which was people don't realize that the goal was to topple that building and potentially, you know, if they were lucky, knock it into the other building. And if that bomb had been placed correctly and was of sufficient size, it could have potentially done that. And the loss of life would have been catastrophic, absolutely catastrophic. I mean, think of the footprint of those buildings. If one building topples, whether it falls into the other building or not, that building is going to devastate the area around it. You know, the financial district would have been shattered. Not to mention the life. You mentioned the Nairobi bombing. Right. Uh, Sort of prompted my interest in starting terrorism reporting because I learned that Osama bin Laden's secretary was in uh, Arlington, Texas, a suburb of Dallas. And you're right. like, what? Yeah. You know, and so you were finding out that there were, they, they had a presence widespread. Oh, yeah. Not just, not just Al, uh, Al-Qaeda. So did you uh, find they were involved in criminal enterprises here to raise money for what they were doing? Yes. We investigated several different schemes involving fraudulent tax stamps on mm-hmm. certain items and uh, obviously immigration fraud and that kind of thing, which of course is not, but also other other things, other types of, of fraud and things like that, uh, welfare, those kinds of things. Later, do you move from domestic to international terrorism in your work? Yes. In January of 2001, I was promoted uh and uh, assigned to internal affairs. And I worked that until September of 2001 when I was asked to return to the Joint Terrorism Task Force and set up a counterterrorism task force in Los Angeles. And my area responsibility was Orange County, LA County, Ventura County, Santa Barbara County, and I think San Luis Obispo County, I can't remember, to be honest with you. We stood up a multi-agency task force uh, of intelligence analysts and investigators. 
and I liaisoned with um, the Joint Terrorism Task Force. And ultimately, I was able to get my uh, most of my personnel placed within different squads on the Joint Terrorism Task Force. Well, you know, you'd think Orange County, last place you'd find a terrorist, but why? And were you surprised in these what you were finding? No, actually, on July 4th, 2002, I believe it was 2002, went to the LL desk at LAX and shot the place up and then ultimately was killed by an LL or some kind of Israeli security officer. Um, he was from Orange County and I wasn't the least bit surprised. As soon as you start thinking that there's no way that they're going to be here, you're, you're in for a big a big wake-up call because they're in places, there are in places that rural America uh, and all kinds of places, uh, Islamist uh, groups, not necessarily just Al-Qaeda, but Islamist groups in, in all sorts of places in rural America that you would never suspect, mainly because they're able to kind of operate under, under the wire, so to speak, or under the, the curtain. And mm-hmm. also they're, they're taking advantage of the fact that law enforcement is probably understaffed under trained and that kind of thing. And so they can kind of exploit those weaknesses. We had that in California and all over. Yeah. I was surprised that here in Dallas, when I really got into investigating terrorism, you know, I tracked Hamas had a uh, internet service company here and I tracked what they were doing all the way to Birmingham, England, yeah, uh, where they were hosting all of the sites where they were recruiting suicide bombers for Iraq. And uh, they had set themselves up in Birmingham under the guise of a education center. Right. And we're really undermining the law-abiding members of the community who were, it was a Pakistani community, huge community, right. but, you know, perverting Islam, you right. know, yep. teaching yeah. whole different version and really undermining leaders in the community. Right. Salafist Islam. Um a lot of, if, if memory serves me correctly, a lot of the individuals involved in the 7-7-2005 attack in London uh, came from the Midlands, came from Birmingham, were born and raised, British born and raised. And, you know, not their parents yeah. may have immigrated to Britain, but they are yeah. born and raised Britons. Well, I was in the Midlands doing this story a few months before that happened, and we actually had a terrorism expert on who was deep, deep into it, who'd never done an interview, who predicted it, who said it was coming on the transport system. He was like, this is the most vulnerable. And oh, yeah. by golly, it happened. It was our our story. Our whole series was prophetic. I have yeah. to say, I was working for CBS in those days, and they didn't believe it. They hated the story. Right. Yeah. They thought it was... Um, kind of creating fear and stuff mm-hmm. like this. And it was, it was you know, the man, it's part of the problem of what happened to legacy well, media. I, I'll tell you something that really I find so ironic. I am seeing all of all kinds of posts on social media about the outrage, the out, uh, you know, basically focusing outrage on Iran and the uh, suppression and murder of dissidents in Iran that's currently taking place. And I'm thinking to myself, well, where were you people screaming and yelling, you know, 10 years ago or five years ago or two years ago. This is nothing new in Iran. This is the way they roll. This is the way they've rolled since 79, 80. There's nothing new here. None of this is is, is terribly uh, 
uh, out of the ordinary, you know. Well, I know you eventually you went to Iraq uh, doing forensics investigations and all. So, so talk about what you did there. And, you know, I was there with the lead unit during the invasion and then continued to do other stories. And I had a number of people come into me saying the uh, Iranians were behind the improvised explosive devices. I could not get anyone in the government to talk about it, go on the record about it. It was, it was a huge, and I don't know if they were worried that it might, might start another front of the war or what, but yeah, and of course, today, here we are. Right, exactly, yeah. So, so tell me, what were you doing there? I was embedded with an improvised explosive device intelligence cell with the U.S. Army, and I was providing my knowledge and expertise in investigations, organized crime investigations, counterterrorism investigations, that kind of thing, to the intelligence cell. And coming up with one of the things I was asked to do was come up with training ideas for that would assist the army in the emerging battle space as far as you know, that at that point in time, the coalition forces had to operate within the, the framework of, of, of the status of forces agreement. And that included utilizing uh, the Iraqi criminal justice system and Iraqi military and police. And so now you have GIs, American GIs, having to collect evidence as if they were police officers. And so I came up with some ideas for that. We also developed a, um, a, uh, a policy for the seizure of, of uh, assets to disrupt the funding process of, uh, you know, bombers and, and uh, organized rings that were conducting bombings and processing shooting scenes, crime scenes that would be, you know, sniper uh, scenes, processing those scenes and collecting evidence correctly, that kind of thing. And I also supervised the activities of about 15 other colleagues that were embedded with other formations in southern Iraq. So I'm guessing here then that you were getting DNA evidence and you could make links between various sniper scenes and what have you. And it became a case that if the uh, Navy SEALs or Delta Force were raiding a place, guys, don't just throw it in a bag barehanded or something. You got to, right. this is evidence. That is correct. And that's what we tried to do was, you know, obviously a battlefield is not a crime scene in, in Los Angeles. So, you know, there are, there are tactical considerations that have to be taken. But if you have time and the ability to do it, don't just throw it in a bag with your bare hands. You know, bag it, tag it, photograph it, mark where it was, you know, use latex gloves, protect it as much as possible so it can be exploited by forensic experts. What do you feel that you accomplished there? And can you give us any more information about the, uh, the tentacles of Iran and all of this? That information is out there in the public domain as far as sources for improvised explosive devices, the technology, the training, that kind of thing. We know that Iran was involved with the insurgency, the, the, the Shia insurgency in, in Iraq, which is, of course, their next door neighbor. So that shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. And there were other sources of, of material uh, that were coming in from other countries and also the individuals that were involved in bomb placing and that kind of thing were receiving training. And that was coming sometimes from inside the country, but also from, from individuals that were coming in or, or 
getting training outside the country, which is typical for, for terrorism. Do you think the Iranians have an objective to eventually hit inside this country or they'll work around the edges? That's a very good question. I believe they have capability. I definitely believe they have the capability. They are extremely sophisticated and are capable of, of all manner of things. And I cannot imagine that they do not have individuals embedded within the United States as U.S. citizens that are actually sleeper agents. Why couldn't they? If other, if other countries can do it, why can't they do mm-hmm. it? So, I mean, Russia, China, you know, any number of countries have sleeper agents. Also, you know, they have a foothold in, in, in Central America, you know, with the IRGC in Venezuela, the Iranian, uh, the guardians of the Iranian revolution or the Islamic revolution, um, which is in essence, their Quds force is in essence, sort of a, 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 it's a special operations, you know, force that's tasked with, with assassination, bombings, training, that kind of thing. And there's reporting on them, you know, being in this in this hemisphere, and if they're in this hemisphere, why are they there, you know? And and what what possible explanation is that other than to cause eventually cause mayhem? So now you've written a book outside the wire, kind of a composite of experiences and your what you've learned, and I presume outside the wire. But prior to journalism, I was a staffer on the Defense Committee in Congress. Now I'm presuming the wire is. You know, in Vietnam, you would set up a tripwire with Claymore mines around your position. Is that the wire you're talking about? Well, it's, you know, it's sort of a, it's a catch-all. It, uh, it's basically the border. It's the, it's the, it's the concertina wire that, yes. that is, is part of the barrier protecting a military facility. And it's just called outside the wires, euphemistically. And what was the inspiration? And, you know, let's don't spoil it, but give us a sense of why someone who likes a of a military true crime type thriller would like this book? Well, it's basically, it's a different take than most of your war stories because it's written from a standpoint of a, a cop, a, a seasoned retired LAPD detective who takes a role much like my role and is thrust into the world of deployed U.S. Army and he's sort of a fish out of water in many ways. And Outside the Wire is also, besides being a, a detective, it's also a detective story in the sense that the, the story begins with a murder investigation that he, he sort of does off the books. And as he works through this, a love relationship develops between a physician, or an army physician and he, and they sort of work on this together. And eventually they discover that this is all part of a much, much bigger plot that if it came to fruition will turn would turn the the coalition upside down and be devastating if this plot was able to to be hatched. And it involved individuals on the base and off the base. And you know, that's the kind of story it is. It's an amalgam of a of a war story an action war story, a thriller, a detective story, and a love story, as the, as the title suggests. And I mean, did you always have writing in your heart, or was this a, a new thing for you? Yes, I have. Years ago, I started writing a, uh, a book and kind of set it aside and then wrote a screenplay, and it was optioned, and, and, but it was unproduced. It was a, it was a uh, detective thriller. 
so it was always sort of in the back of my mind. I wrote a few magazine articles that were published. And then while I was in Iraq, I heard about the suicides that unfortunately it's so tragic. These poor young soldiers taking their lives while they're deployed over there is awful. And then there was also an attempted murder. And so I thought, what if a, what if a, a retired detective like me was asked to bring, come in and assist in that investigation? So that's sort of the genesis of the, of the idea of writing a book, but it quickly mm-hmm. morphed into an international terrorism thriller because that's sort of what I like. And is there a follow-on coming? It's actually been started. <laughs> there is a sequel, and uh, it has. I've got about 35 pages of the first draft in the can, but uh, it's been put on hold since I've been so heavily involved in the production of of this book, you know, I had an agent in Los Angeles uh, that was pretty well known and he passed away. And so then I had to find another agent and you know how hard that can be. And then from finding another agent, then getting another publisher. So that was about a two year delay. And so I really haven't uh, had a chance to, to hit it, but I am going to be going back to it very, very soon now and, and finishing that first draft. Well, Gary, it sounds like you're in act three of your career. Yeah. Where can we find the book? And again, it's Outside the Wire. Outside the Wire by Gary Edgington, a novel of uh, murder, love, and war. My uh, website is GaryEdgingtonAuthor.com. Uh, the book is at Barnes and Noble and uh, or on Barnes and Noble and Amazon.com, uh, both their websites. Uh, my Instagram is at Gary Edgington, or I'm sorry, yeah, at gedgingtonbooks.com. And my email is garyedgingtonbooks at gmail.com. Gary, thank you for sharing the time with us and the stories from your career. And good luck. I mean, it sounds like a great book in the sense of what you've blended together here. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. It's uh It's been quite a ride. (laughs) The work really begins after you write the end, is what I tell people. (laughs) We want to be your favorite true crime podcast, so please recommend us to your friends and leave a review wherever you listen. If you want to receive updates and bonus interviews, join our true crime community at truecrimereporter.com. If you have suggestions or know of a case that we should look into, email us at fan at truecrimereporter.com. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. You can read more about our news team at truecrimereporter.com. Thanks for listening to our Journey into Darkness.